This episode includes explicit language and features themes surrounding mental health, relationships and trauma. Some listeners may find this content distressing. Listener's discretion is advised. It takes a certain courage to want to say, I don't want a Band-Aid anymore, I want to heal. Today we speak with Mitch Wallace. Mitch is the founder of Heart on My Sleeve, a leading global mental health movement. The founder of Real Mates, a training organisation that helps leaders and staff from top multinational companies lean into the tough conversations. He is also the founder of Calm Water, a relaxation drink company that relieves stress and anxiety. Mitch has a Master's of Psychology from Columbia University, New York, and a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Sydney. He is a notable social media influencer and mental health advocate, and also runs a weekly psychology podcast called Understood. He is currently writing a book called Seven Ways to Coping, which will be published in 2021. Mitch is a leader in the mental health space with a lifelong mission to empower others to overcome suffering and reimagine the healing potential of the mind through the power of storytelling, conversation and living with authenticity. It's time to talk relationships, mental health and trauma. So thank you so much today, Mitch, for being here with us on Challenging Taboo. We really appreciate it. My absolute Uh, pleasure. Thank you. So we're going to be delving into um, a question for you, kind of coming from a male's lens. Um, so Adita and I have experienced um, through working the Stepping Out program that shame is an emotion and a shared human experience. Um, it comes in many different forms and has many different impacts. What is the societal idea of masculinity and what's the relation of shame in regards to that? Uh, yeah, Risa, I would say shame is pretty much the seed of all, uh, well, maybe not all, but most suffering across any gender. And it is such a powerful emotion. Uh, I wish that it wasn't here, but unfortunately it serves a really important purpose as well. Uh, in that it's the, the difference between shame and guilt, as Brene Brown says it is, Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong as a human. So shame ties into our self-worth, whereas guilt ties into our behaviour. And the purpose of both shame and guilt is to keep us bonded as a species because in the absence of having that, people would do or animals would do um, and sometimes continue to do things that aren't safe or helpful for the survival of the individual or the group. So when we act in a way that makes other people feel bad or unsafe, it's our body's response of saying, don't do that anymore. But I think when it gets to a shame that is chronic, i.e. it lasts for long periods of time, it's often either inaccurate, unhelpful or exaggerated. So I think shame is particularly bad when it is there for uh, a reason that it shouldn't be. And I think in a lot of trauma cases, particularly sexual trauma, uh, 
the victims can often take on narratives that aren't theirs to hold yeah. around their consent or uh, their whether they put themselves into the wrong situation or now that I'm damaged goods. And the shame is then not a healthy keeping me part of the society. It is now eroding at every sense of stability or identity piece that I have. Um, and that's the, that's the blessing and the curse of the brain is that the brain has all these beautiful mechanisms built in, but often they can go into excess mode and start to become self-destructive. When it comes to masculinity, I think it's obvious for a very long time that masculinity was, was painted in a certain way, whether it's from a movie or a song or a book, you know, that even myself have looked at being physically big and strong is very, very important, both in the images that I'm shown, but also I think my DNA tells me that a bit as well. You know, we've evolved from chimps and there was an alpha chimp and they mated the most, they ate the most. And so part of us is like, you need to get big and strong and dominant and aggressive in order to prevail in the world. But what's happened is the human biology has, um, sorry, the, the human psyche has updated faster than the biology. And that obviously we don't need that anymore. I mean, look at Justin Bieber. He's one of the best looking guys on the planet and he's tiny um, <laughs> as an example. So I think that our perception has changed, but our biology is still reminding of, of, of our ancestral history. Mm. So I've felt shame many times in my life for being too short, too skinny, a whole bunch of stuff. And then on top of not just the physical aspect of it, I'm a very sensitive person. I have a lot of feminine energy, um, even though I'm a very straight male. I, have, I, I love my soft side. I love introspection. I think deep. I like to get into emotions and have uh, real conversations with people. And it took a fucking long time to allow myself that side of me. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. there, were, there was, I still to this day don't know that, like I don't have a guy's group in the like, you know, going down to the beach with 15 people that I would call um, aligned to my value set at least or, or communicates the same way. I have individuals, guys who are my brothers would take a bullet for and they would do the same for me. Yeah. But it's far and few between that I can find people that I can connect on that level with. Mm. So would you say that shame is necessary then? Because you said that the human psyche has obviously developed a lot. Is shame necessary to carry with us or is it something that we just have to manage? Uh, I think the Buddhists got it right when they said it's always an and. It's never, you know, in the Western world we try and want a definitive answer but very rarely is life black and white. It's, it's often in the grey. And yeah. in my experience, you find something healthy uh, somewhere, somewhere in, in the integrated centre. So I would say yes and no. <laughs> um, I know that's not very helpful, but yes to an extent. L- look at medication, for example. Medication saves lives. Um, but medication actually becomes poison depending on the dosage. So really medication is not a thing. It's not a tablet or a substance. It's a dose. Um, so I think the same is true for life. Certain emotions, certain experiences, situations, they all 
are medicinal. They're all therapeutic. Even if they hurt, they're often therapeutic. I mean, you have to go and tear a muscle in the gym for it to grow. So I think growth in the mind requires tension. It's when it moves into a point of excess beyond the point in which you can cope. When it's like, hey, this is now absolutely not serving me. Uh, It's probably highly unjustified and it's not serving anyone else either because as a result of this excess shame, I'm now in a depressive spiral and anxiety spiral, hypervigilance, anger, whatever else. So we have to get back to the core wound as to what is prolonging this narrative that I'm carrying with me about the way that I view myself in the world. Um, In saying that, um, how do you manage that shame or how, how do you overcome it becoming such a negative impact? Is there, is there something else you need to bring in? I know everyone talks about vulnerability in particular, um, but how do, you, how do you get there? What's a, what's a step you can take? I prefer the word authenticity to vulnerability. And to me, what authenticity is the willingness to be real, um, be real with yourself and others. So I don't think you can overcome shame without first being able to look at it in the eyes and acknowledge what, what is this? What is driving this? Not what happened, and this is the big distinguishing feature, not what happened, but what did it make me believe about myself or the world? Yeah. And I think that's where people get caught is they go back through trauma and they put physical pieces together, but they don't necessarily confront the belief systems that came out of that, which is I'm a bad person, you know, or whatever else that is. So with the right therapist, I think it's really helpful to go back into situations or belief systems and deconstruct them and challenge them with with more helpful and accurate evidence and information and as well another massive cure to shame is love (laughs) like actually feeling loved even when you're broken not waiting to get Mm. better until you feel loved but saying fuck here's all the splinters and the cracks in the mosaic and when someone is able to see all of that and hold all of that and appreciate it unconditionally it's like it dissolves shame. It, like shame just cannot exist in a vacuum of judgment it, you know, and, and a plethora of love. It can only exist where you're fighting to be something that you're not or be more than what you are. Mm. Um, and I've found one of the most helpful things for shame when it comes to my own experience living with mental illness for over 20 years, the, the, the shame anti-inflammatory was someone else saying to me, I get it and I've been there. Um, He didn't even need to change the situation or take the problem away from me just by meeting me and saying, I get it and I've been there. And by the way, it took me 25 years before someone says, said, I get it and I've been there. I thought I was the only person on earth until a few years ago that was going Mm -hmm. through what I was going through. And simply feeling that sense of belonging takes away a lot of the weight. So in terms of... um love and navigating kind of authenticity um, and being your most authentic self within a relationship, how do you kind of go about that or what are your perspectives on that? Especially when you have experienced certain traumas that bring out that shame that you've just talked about. Yeah, work, hard work, mm-hmm. a lot of hard work. Um, <laughs> I think that you you have to be willing to go inward. The only way around is through, and it sucks, but it's true. Um, think about if you have a dislocated shoulder, 
the last thing you want to do is put that thing back in its place. Because if you're already in pain, you know, the shoulder being out of its socket's going to hurt getting it back in is going to hurt too. So you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm in enough pain. I'm just going to get really creative at adapting for the rest of my life and grab the Cocoa Pops from the middle shelf instead of the top shelf and play tennis like this, you know? And I think a lot of people, what happens after traumas is you go, I'm already in pain. The last thing I want to do is go into more pain, which I know that healing is going to involve. So it takes a certain courage to want to say, I don't want a Band-Aid anymore. I want to heal. So having the courage to go inward is step one, often supported by someone loving you and giving you that courage or at least standing beside you. And then step two, going back through that work, being willing to feel it, even the hard parts, we, we feel to heal. And then step three, replacing it with more helpful and accurate mindsets and belief systems and somatic sensations and step four would be have really good boundaries throughout the process because often when we have had trauma, it can create what's called a disorganized attachment system. And that disorganization will mean that we either become totally enmeshed and lose ourselves in others or totally cold and fear that everyone's going to abandon us and therefore self-sabotage before that happens. So part of the healing process isn't just independent of other people. It's it's, it's learning how to t- relate to other people in a healthy way along the way. So I think that kind of goes back to the idea of communication. Um, so do you reckon you can manage your mental health when you're in a relationship with someone else who has mental health concerns or is struggling with mental health? Can, can you maintain a relationship with two people with mental ill health issues? Yeah, or, or how can you um, maintain that? Yeah, bloody oath. Um, it's a, again, it's, it takes a conscious communication partnership to do that. But don't all relationships require that? Uh, and there's, you know, statistically speaking, 87% of people will cross the diagnostic threshold into mental illness at some point in their life, whether they're diagnosed or not. So almost 100% of us are going to be in that position at some point or another. Uh, and... I would say a lot of us who are dysfunctional in relationships might not be diagnosed with a mental illness. That doesn't make us any less dis, you know, um, any, any less dysfunctionable or more functioning. Um, and we're ebbing and flowing in this human experience of feeling good, feeling bad, getting it right, getting it quote unquote wrong. Uh, so all relationships need healthy communications. Every single person should be working on themselves and finding out, how is my shit getting in the way of either my goals or the relationships that I want to get deeper on? And I think a commitment to getting better, a lot of people end up in relationships and they avoid doing the work on themselves and try and solve it through their partner. Not a fan of that approach. I have seen it go wrong so many times. Because you, it's almost a form of escapism. Mm. I don't want to look at this, so I'm going to put all my fears into this object over here and hope that it makes it all go away because love feels amazing or at least romance feels amazing. Not necessarily love. It could be lust or, you know, whatever else. So do not find a partner thinking that they will take it all away. You have to be able to stand on your own two feet, become your own self, self-soothing object 
a partner should make you better, be more connected with life and and bring you joy and make you a better person. They shouldn't make you enough. And that is very important. That's not to say that you need to be enough before you start a relationship. You can journey towards stability together. It's, it's being super clear that it's not, it can't be used in isolation of other things. You shouldn't just have a relationship and then be like, I don't need to go to therapy or like work on myself or go to the gym anymore or focus on my self-care because they're here. It, I would say it's incredibly se- selfish. You've trapped them now. <laughs> like <laughs> now it's time to, to become the best version of yourself together. It kind of sounds like you're describing in a certain way what a healthy relationship um, would look like. So someone who's working on themselves, um, likewise with another partner. Can, could you elaborate a bit more on that, on the concept of a healthy relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the... I think the difference between a healthy relationship in general plus slash one with a mental illness involved is there's going to be more sensitive points and they need to be talked about more. So for example, uh, to a, to someone who's not experiencing anxiety, depression or traumatic background, uh, grabbing your wrists might be, normal but for someone else that might be a real hot spot and you feel shame to be able to even tell your partner hey it makes me really uncomfortable when you grab my wrist uh or when when you don't text me when you're out and get home at 3 a.m i start to feel very insecure um a lot of us don't want to talk about that but there's going to be more trigger points and more soft spots and so i think communication becomes even more important but not just the frequency of having the conversation, the type of conversation had. If you're permanently making your partner wrong, that's not healthy. You can't hide behind that and say, but I'm communicating. It's the way you communicate is as important as what you say. And I think that owning things from the I, this is how I feel. When this happens, I feel X. And then stating your needs. If this happened, it would really help me with Y. As opposed to you're doing this wrong, you need to change, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so to summarize that, when you uh, have two people in a relationship with mental ill health, I think you need to communicate more because there are higher chances of sensitivities or soft spots or triggers and you need to communicate better, particularly with ownership and not constantly projecting things onto other people and working out where compromises can be made and where they can't. But ultimately, to answer your question, Riz, directly, a healthy relationship is about, and if you want to geek out on Dan Siegel's attachment theory, is about what's called linked differentiation. So separateness and connectedness, again, going back to Buddhism, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they need each other to exist When you're too linked, you lose your individuality and things can go really bad, i.e. I'm sad when they're sad more than what's healthy. Uh, I'm completely dependent on this person. I have no self-worth, no self-stability without them. That's completely linked. Completely differentiated is no intimacy, no bond, uh, none of that, physically, emotionally, sexually, blah, blah, blah. Linked differentiation is I know I'm a separate being. I acknowledge that. I work on myself 
I zip myself into this skin bag every day, associated and connected with my body, my emotions, my life. But I bring that into relationship with you. And I honor the connection that we have, the uniqueness of that, the way that they make me feel, the way that I make them feel. So it's two people, it's one plus one equals two, not a half and a half equals one. Yeah. Mm. In that case, um, how do you engage with someone if they're not willing to communicate? Is I don't want to put it in this way, but is that a, a lost relationship or possibly? Does that require, possibly? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that one thing is it takes patience. You can't you can't expect someone who's not very open to just open up straight away. I think people deserve a chance and deserve to uh, know that trust is real and it takes time to prove that trust. However, you, if someone, you can't force someone to speak up. You can't force someone to do anything. It's, it's way better to, to modulate your involvement before it is permanently make someone wrong, hoping that gaslighting and guilt tripping is going to change them. All you can do is state your needs and then try and discuss to see if a, a plan and an arrangement can be made about that. If those needs are consistently not met, then I would be using my involvement to say, well, I'm opting out of X aspects of the relationship or the relationship entirely. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, again, it's not black and white. It takes time. I don't think you should give up on people, but you also need to respect yourself and your needs and be okay with that and do that in an assertive way, not an aggressive way or a passive way, but in a, in a caring, calm, but yet confident manner. I guess it comes back into, as you highlighted before, sitting in your boundaries and correct yeah how that relationship is going to be affecting you and during mental health trauma and boundaries man like i I underestimated how how important they were for each other Mm. so important uh and the research like if you look at borderline personality disorder for example which i think should be relabeled to complex trauma experience um often it's, I look at BPD like the opposite of bipolar. So bipolar is you swing up to down, happy to sad. I look at BPD as love to hate or completely love to completely abandon. You swing between the two extremes. Um, BPD is very often the result of complex relational trauma that has destabilized the attachment um, system. The number one treatment for BPD is um, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical behavioral therapy is predominantly boundaries and mindfulness. So if you look at, like I like to look at um, outlier cases to see how we can apply that to the masses. Boundaries aren't just key for helping you have more romance or get along with your brother and sister better. Boundaries help you heal your internal wounds because it's how we relate to other people that's perpetuating the problems that we're carrying or the emotions we're carrying ourselves. By working on boundaries, it's not just a practical thing. It doesn't help you just, you know, make each other cup of teas without being negligent. It's a physical healing process. When we learn to relate to other people better, we learn to protect ourselves and heal from old wounds. So what do you think the key would be, or not the key, how do you know what's an appropriate boundary without drawing in on that trauma? Um, Because I I was watching a 
a video earlier and it was saying that um, a lot of trauma survivors draw on their masculine energy and they use that to basically set their boundaries and that might be pushing someone away or being overly assertive with their rules. How, how would you manage what's an appropriate boundary when you are a trauma survivor or do you carry certain elements of trauma? It's impossible to say that there is one boundary that's right, A, for everyone or every situation. The, a boundary is probably the most contextual thing known to humanity. Like it just cannot be talked about without context. So I think you need to consider um, in what relationship dynamic are you speaking? Is it a coworker, a friend, blah, 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 blah. And the second is like what's the situation or topic that you're talking about? Those two things would dictate whether a boundary is healthy or unhealthy. But I think in, in the most macro if you level all the way up to boundaries, it's usually either I'm either over-involved or under-involved towards someone else or I'm either too soft or too rigid, someone else toward me. Okay. So that's that either outgoing or incoming is either over-under, rigid, soft. We're always trying to look toward the middle. So if we're too soft, how do we tighten things up with some doses of rigidity? If we're over-involved, how do we tighten things up with some maybe letting go and, and moving towards the center? Um, a lot of us will, by default, swing one way in across the broad spectrum of our relationships. We'll either be over-involved by default or under-involved by default, both as potentially dangerous as the other, or we will swing between both, which is usually the disorganized system, which is highly related to trauma. Uh, so I would ask myself... Uh, am I safe? And, and that could look like, am I doing too much and putting myself at risk? Am I opening myself up to manipulation, exploitation, physical violence, blah, blah, blah? Or am I not doing enough? Am I completely foregoing my want and need to connect as a human here? And I'm self-sabotaging my way out of this relationship and not opening up at all which is preventing me from feeling joy in my life. Mm. So, and, and again, the, the, it's very nuanced and incredibly complex. And I think working with a therapist is really helpful who have backgrounds in attachment or DBT. Mm. I mean, with the idea of safety, um, I guess that could be quite difficult for somebody who's experienced trauma as a child. Um, what what does that look like? What do you think safety um, would look like in a relationship? Oh, that's a big question. It would mean, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is not compromising on your value system, feeling like your needs are being equally met and heard to the other person, not more, not less. Feeling honoured and validated for your emotion or your experience, regardless of their perception of it. Asterisk, they can, I think, other people can have a say over your behaviour, not the way that you feel. That you are able to sustain the relationship dynamic over the long term without it negatively affecting other things that are important to you. That your, I think I said this in point one, but your physical, emotional and social needs are met adequately without massive compromise 
um, and that we are somewhat happy and content. I think safety is, it's not all practical. Like it's a heart thing. Like if you ask in your heart, am I safe? There's going to be stories that come up. No, you're not. What about blah, 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 from the trauma? But then there's a, there's a level of awareness and, and consciousness that we can all tap into no matter the trauma, often with help, where we can start to get into more of that pure awareness, that real deep, almost spiritual type love of knowing who we are and that we are protected uh, and that we are seen and that we can regulate and hold ourselves and allow others to do the same. Coming back to coping um, mechanisms as well, um, I just want to draw on a kind of a new idea um, within this discussion. So the concept of humour, I know that um, you use it quite often, um, just even throughout this discussion. Taking the piss out of your wrist. I think you're funny. Um, (laughs) And then, yeah, so do you think, though, that humour is a good tool or is it more of a facade um, to cope through pain? I'll give you 10 bucks to guess my answer. Yes and no. Uh, A bit of both. Uh, It is good, again, just like medicine and poison. It's good up until an extent until it becomes bad. Mm. If you're using it as a defence mechanism to avoid intimacy, um, then it's probably not helpful. Mm. If you're using it as a way to avoid looking at pain that you hold internally and making a joke out of everything because it's actually too confronting, to look at the reality of a situation, probably not helpful. But is it a great way to not just live permanently in this ball of heaviness and being suppressed by your past and everything needing to be super serious? Fuck no. I used to take myself so seriously and my life has become immeasurably better taking myself less seriously and and becoming lighter and looking at why is everything heavy? Does it have to be this way? You know, a lot of life is perception and I think taking a lighter approach on things that don't necessarily need to be heavy is really important. Once you've unpacked something and you've unpacked and you, and you understand it, whether it's a belief system or a story or an event, you've, you understand it, you've felt it, you've made peace with it, it could take days, hours, months, years, who knows, but then stop unpacking it. I remember my stepdad once told me, he's like, it sounds like you've got this thing down to like a Russian China doll and anything from here is you're picking at the scab, let it heal. Mm. And, and sometimes humour allows us to bounce out of that tiny little nano thing that we keep dissecting into, all right, that's enough unpacking now. I'm going to let that become a scar. Yeah, mm. yeah. You mentioned that there was kind of perception change. What kind of um, instigated or triggered that shift? So many little moments. One big moment was seeing a, a guy, seeing someone for the first time in my life explain some of the symptoms they were going through and me being like, holy shit. Like he was talking about depersonalization, which is a very misunderstood symptom, which I had experienced my whole life not knowing that's what it was, feeling like a complete, complete freak. And when I started to understand it more, it started to lose its grip over me. So just having coherence as to what the fuck is going on is such an asset. Um, Another thing is I have great people around me who balance me out. When I get too heavy and intense and in my own way, 
I have amazing people around me who will be like, I love you, dude, you know, shut the fuck up or something like that. Or, you know, we'll have a few drinks and they'll pull me up to dance or my mum will end up dancing on top of a table with a glass of wine. And when I see that levity in others, it allows me to pull myself out of my own black little pit and come into their world. So it kind of sounds like almost normalising what you're going through is what helped you come out of any struggles is that, is that kind of right or or like finding a I wouldn't I don't want to say a description or a label but finding something that explains why you're why you're feeling certain things I I think the 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 healing cannot occur until you accept who and where you are I just fundamentally believe that so in my opinion you, like you you don't go and attend to a broken bone without first dealing with the swelling and the infection. So number one priority is, and to me, swelling and infection with mental illness is shame. Get the anti-inflammatory of shame, which is usually knowing that you're not alone and feeling understood by someone. That will remove the shit so that you can then do the work. It's often not the work. It's usually the thing that allows you to, like, it clears the space for then you to go in and do the work. So starts with I accept or at least understand. I understand and accept who and where I am. From there, I'm going to go do the work. And I'm actually writing a book on what the work looks like. It's the seven stages of coping. Connection, coherence, control, calm, chemistry, and a few others. But there are then macro levers that you pull after the shame is gone and the swelling's away to heal the bone so that you can move beyond band-aiding into structural reformation. With the whole concept of understanding who you are, is it important for your support networks around you to also have that awareness and understanding or do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Fuck yeah. It's, you know, like any relationship, it's two-way. And I think the best quality anyone can have bringing into a relationship outside of love is curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity to me is the antithesis of criticism. It's again, void of judgment. It doesn't say I know what's best. It doesn't say that I even agree with you. Curiosity isn't I agree. It's just, I want to get to know where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. We can have a talk about what that means after, but with no judgment and no self-righteousness, I'm going to try and understand your world. And I think that that is just, so powerful awesome so i think really (laughs) i agree okay cool so we're done that's the world problem solved (laughs) so i think really being like aware of yourself and being authentic with yourself and also having that connection with other people i'm guessing i'm assuming from what you're saying connection is the the biggest coping tool known to man if i if you were to say i've got one credit point or one hour or whatever it is to do something to make me feel better or to help me cope. And you could use that on going for a run, doing yoga, uh, drinking a beer, whatever it was, I would say connect with someone or have a conversation because that's the practical uh, iteration. Sorry, just to play devil's advocate, a lot of people I think um, in our day and generation talk about being okay by yourself and, um, you know, it's like find a way to sit by yourself. How would you 
kind of separate that from connection because I think okay. a lot of they're not mutually exclusive. Okay. You need you need the connection to be able to go and then sit by yourself. What I mean by that is that if we didn't get the right parenting or relationships growing up, we we never got the bridge to build an island in our own body. So we never learned that home or where I want to run to for soothing, what I used to do as a child is, you know, go to my parent. If we if there was nowhere to run, then we never were able to build an island of our own because as adults, we do absolutely, to your point, Riz, we do absolutely need to be able to run to ourself. Mm. We need to be able to self-soothe and to what we call regulate emotional spikes on our own. But if you don't know how to do that on your own, I think that you learn to do that by connecting. When, when you learn what it's like to relate in a healthy way to others and feel loved by others, that is the scaffolding that you learn to build to love yourself and sit by yourself so that when the scaffolding's removed, that building still maintains. Yeah, yeah. And even when the building's built, by the way, you, you don't, that doesn't mean that it stands by itself all the time. I, I, it, it's both. You need to be able to self-soothe and you also need to be able to go into a relationship. They need each other. I don't think using one or the other is the right way to go. Hmm. So there's like a real interrelatedness and connection between Fuck that yeah. as well. That's life. You know, look at everything. It, everything needs one another. We're a complex system of unique parts that are linked and connect. Yeah, life would be too simple and probably too boring without that happening. Correct. Mm. Um, in saying that, <laughs> what would be your like your take-home message? Yeah. Um from everything that you've said, yeah, your, your little yeah. Oprah, your Oma. There's, there's a gift underneath your seat. Have a look. <laughs> Could you imagine how cool that would be? Can you guys set that, that up yeah. before we release? Um, so I guess to, so I run an organize, a few mental health organisations now, one of them being Heart on My Sleeve and it's my baby because it was the thing that accidentally transitioned me from being Microsoft corporate guy to mental health guy. And it's now a global movement where people share their stories of lived experience. And we have a whole bunch of, of campaigns and programs that sit under that. And I'm so proud of the team and what they've done there. But the tagline of heart on my sleeve is um, we have to be real and willing to feel in order to heal. And I think that relates to both self and other, which is stop trying to think your way out of it, feel your way through it. And that requires kind of dropping the bullshit mask to yourself and to other people and being willing, be willing to see yourself and be seen for who you are. And through that love, you will heal. Mm. And if you can't find those relationships or if you can't find that strength, don't give up. It is there. People will love you and understand you, I promise. Um, and I think having, having a very um, sound self-care strategy is super important, whether it's journaling, exercise, diet, work, hobbies, interests, spirituality, etc. We have to be able to invest in our mental health like we do our physical health. And you got this. I want people to know you fucking got this. Like I know 
know to the depth how bad it can be. I really do. And so I can give you all the advice in the world, but I think the most helpful thing is just being told that, you know, I see you and I hear you and I feel you, you're not alone. Yeah. Thank you so much again um, for joining us today and just really being raw with your information and also putting that academic side on it. I think it really helps Mm. people understand the whole holistic concept of mental health um, a lot clearer. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Edita. Thanks, Marissa. Thank you so much. And also um, linking the idea of the mind, body and those connections. That's one thing I will add just before we go is, is to your point, Edita, is with trauma often comes dissociation as a coping tool because we start to see our body as not a safe place. And I think body work, reacquainting yourself with your body and, and cleansing it and and loving it again and finding safety and security and refuge in it is so important. So, so important. And I think no matter what you're doing, whether it's on your own or with a therapist, coming back and making peace in your own skin and sitting behind your own eyes is a very worthwhile use of time. Absolutely. Thank you, Mitch, again. You've been invaluable. Absolutely. Thank you. Peace out, Thank you so much. (laughs) See ya.